Well, hey, all you wiretappers out there, back here in the studio, Gangland Wire, as you can tell. I don't know why I say that every time. Or you have it, I guess, just a way to lead into the uh, the show. And I have a cool show, I think, for you. I've been working on this off and on for quite a while. I tried to get even more uh, background on it, I, but I, I thought I did pretty good. Uh, this is going to be the story of what happened when Sammy the Bull Gravano got popped for the ecstasy ring. You know, there's a lot of a lot of rumors about it. There's a lot of different uh, opinions about that. How much money was he making off of? Was he really involved? Was it just his kid uh, doing something that he he you know comes in and bails out his kid as best he can? And and is with both stories. It's kind of somewhere in between. Uh, anyhow, well let's let's just get started with this story. I think it's a great story. Now that guy Peter Moss wrote his biography titled Underboss, and and Moss talks about in the last of the book kind of well we'll get on into what happened to him after he goes into witness protection and he's in witness protection when this book comes out but the last man that gravano sent to jail was joe watts who was a gambino family member and and a really close confidant of, of john Gotti. And, and watts had hired f lee bailey the famous f lee bailey of the uh, dream team, the uh, OJ thing. He, Apley Bailey, when I was a young man, was the cat's meow lawyer. He was the big time lawyer. He could, he could get you off anything. And and Bailey got him what everybody thought was a sweet deal. And Watts was really grateful. And and according to what I read, uh, Watts had ten Brioni suits delivered to ba- Bailey. Now uh, Bailey assured him all he had to do was you know for this sweet deal. All he had to do was just give some good tips on what's going on in the Gambino family. And, you know, government doesn't really work like that. They want more than just a few tips, stuff they can get from low-level guys. And you're going to have to give them something good. They're going to have to be putting somebody in jail pretty quick if they let somebody like Joe Watts off. Uh, and I think it was a murder charge. I didn't really get into it. Now, Bailey <clears throat> claimed to Watts that, that, you know, the government's really got a weak case in order, you know, as a lawyer, here's what you do. You, you don't really want to go to trial if you don't have to. You get to save money, usually. Oftentimes, they give you so much money up front, and that's how much money you get, whether you go to trial or not. And, and so, Bailey, in order to keep from going to trial, he claimed the government had a weak case in order to get Joe Watts to take this deal. Said Sammy the Bull's deep into witness protection. He's gone. He's undergone plastic surgery, and they want to want to bring him back where somebody might see him, uh, which is all kind of you know. He did a few things, but you know, uh, he didn't do that much to alter his appearance. Gravano, he was wrong. Gravano was already willing and able to testify, and the government's ready, willing and able to bring him to testify, and and. Joe Watts was failing miserably at his job as a top echelon informant. So in the end, the government dumped Watts. He had to plead guilty to a murder conspiracy. And, and uh, actually, he was just released this last year. I don't know what he's doing. I think I'm pretty sure he's still alive. I often wonder what he thinks of uh, Gravano and the modern Gambino family and, and Sammy the Bull's podcast. And, and a lot's happened since brother Joe Watts went into the penitentiary and came back out. So when, when Peter Moss released this book, Underboss, uh, at the very end of it, he wrote, at that time, Sammy's wife had divorced him, sold her house, 
another property and, and moved away from New York City with the kids, Gerard and Deborah. So we don't really know where they are, but the, what he indicates, they're not with Gravano. Well, now we know they were all down in the same city. They did get a divorce. Salvatore Sammy the Bull Gravano was creating his new life, and he had legitimate employment. Uh, he created a company called Marathon Constructions and Creative Pools down in Phoenix. Now, Marathon Construction, I guess, was like the, the overarching kind of company. And then he had another minor company in the same building that's Creative Pools, wanting to build pools. And there's a lot of pools get built down in, uh, in, in Phoenix, Arizona. If you ever flown over Phoenix, <laughs> look down. Every, every house has a pool in the backyard. Uh, Moss wrote at the end of the book, Gravano has the body of a man 20 years younger than he is. Uh, and, and he still does. I still, he looks good. Said he works out rigorously, runs five miles every morning. Uh, he started doing that at Quantico when he was, you know, staying at Quantico when the FBI, uh, I think it's a military base. Actually, they keep people at, they bring them back in up to New York or wherever they got to go to testify and then go back down to Quantico. So it's, you know, it's up in that Northeast area. And so you can, you know, be really close to where you got to testify. He'd quit smoking, except maybe an occasional cigar too. He drank, you know, like one beef eater martini uh, every evening and that kind of thing. And, and, he, and he says with two olives, a little tidbit about Sammy the Bull Gravano. He likes two olives with his martinis. Now, he did, as he claimed, he never testified a member against a member of his own crew. And, and he told Peter Moss, he said, you know, La Cosa Nostra is not about honor and brotherhood. It's about greed and getting what you want and getting power. He told Moss that, you know, at least my own kids now know what that life really is. And I hope other kids will realize it and, and not get into it. You know, all you got to do is look at my experience and it was not that good. And there's been several other guys, Michael D. Leonardo, he was, he was the same way when, when he went in witness protection. First, he went to jail and wasn't talking. Didn't have really that long to go, but I think it was Peter Gotti, maybe some of the Gambinos, upper echelon Gambino people, they took his stuff and did not take care of his family and just let him go. And he, he told me, he says, I told him, I said, you know, I'm not in here forever. I'm coming back out, and, and I don't. I can't remember what put him over the edge to to testify. There was something that kind of put him over the edge. And uh, go back and listen. I've got a two parter out there uh, uh, on uh, Michael D. Leonardo. It's really interesting. I, I repost every once in a while some little tidbits from it. I'll, uh, I've done a couple of them about the night he was made, which is interesting, and one about the uh, the uh, uh, his life growing up when he first got involved with mob guys. Peter Moss also puts in his book that he asked Sammy about his physical safety. And, and he said, you know, he said, Sammy replies. And, and this is a typical, hey, bro, <laughs> bro, you know, hey, a lot of guys that go into witness protection are constantly looking over their shoulder, always worried about whether again, somebody's going to find them or not and live this life. You know, a car lives a thousand deaths this and, and a, uh, a lion only dies once or something along those lines and, and he's a lion uh, you know i can't take that away from the guy he's he's a lion he's he doesn't he says i don't worry about who that guy is in the corner who that guy is that's you know happens to be behind me and i, I think i seen the same car you know when i left one place to when i arrive at another place or or i think somebody's sitting out 
front watching me or something like that. He said, I don't worry about that. You know, if they get me, they get me. It's kind of like we had a guy in Kansas City said, you know, and they were using bombs at the time and they tried once with the bomb. And, and he used to joke. He said, you know, if, if they get me, he said, you know, I won't know it. It'll be over. So, uh, you know, and, and he had that kind of a, an attitude about that. And, you know, who he said, he, he didn't tell Moss, he said, whoever they send better be good. And they sent some guys out, uh, at Huck Carbonaro and, and a couple other guys. They sent some guys out and they did some stalking of, of Sammy the Bull. And then they all got caught up in other stuff back in New York. And, and I don't really, I didn't feel that they were really that good at it. There's other people I think they could have sent that were, were better than that, better than those guys they sent out. He did have a lot of his old tattoos from his young, younger life removed back then, except for one picture of Jesus. <laughs> he said, Moss asked him about, you know, what's up with leaving that one tattoo from your old life of Jesus. And, and he said, well, I guess God still likes me. At least I hope he does. Uh, now, Sid said, as we know, uh, if you watch him on YouTube at all, he's got a lot of tattoos all over uh, himself again. I, I don't get that tattoo thing, but certainly have a couple of granddaughters that do. One of them in particular, she <laughs> gets another. She was getting a new tattoo about every month or two there for a while. She's finally gotten a little bit older and she's, she's cut back on that. But anyway, I digress. That was 1997. So 2000, three years later, here's Sammy. He's under arrest. And here's his exact quote. I was stupid. You can say, Sammy, you were a retard. I can hear him saying that. And those are the very words he used in a jailhouse interview after the Phoenix local cops, not the feds, the local cops arrested him for his part in this Phoenix, Arizona ecstasy ring. And, and this was February of 2000. So where did this ecstasy come from in Arizona in 2000? Go back to the 1980s. You know, they started in, in high schools and young adults. They started these parties called raves. I don't know if you're of a certain age, you remember that. I remember when they first started happening in Kansas City. We have a place in the West Bottoms. It's a bunch of old uh, uh, warehouses and old turn-of-the-century brick buildings. And somebody would rent out one of those big open spaces, get a DJ to come in. And, and I don't remember how they got the word around this before social media, but there would be thousands of kids would show up. So they're having these raves in, in regular bars and, and with DJs, and it was uh, dance music, and it, it was a big deal. If you're a certain age, you know about that. Same time, and, and a lot of young testosterone-filled young men uh, were hanging out at a particular Taco Bell, and I think it was Gilbert, Arizona, so you know, it's all this old Tempe, Scottsdale, Phoenix area, uh, and they were kind of getting into this and, and, and they were called devil dogs. They were, they were like, I don't know. There were guys that liked to do steroids and lift weights and, and, uh, embraced a kind of a, uh, white nationalist, white power, uh, attitude. So they'd often yell white power and bark like dogs when they were beating somebody. And they often would catch some, you know, dark complected person, black person, dark complected person, Somebody they knew was a Jew and, and, and beat him up. And, and, and the hangers on would, would bark like dogs and they were devil dogs. They started hanging out at these raves, of course, as all young people did. And, and ecstasy 
was growing in popularity. A little bit later, I'm going to go back and see where that ecstasy came from. It came from above all places. Best I could trace it back was early on was the good stuff came out of Europe. But before that, it came out of Israel. And I'm not sure exactly. You know, it's really hard to trace something like that down. But uh, but best I could say, it came from Israel up to Europe and then over to the United States. And but ecstasy became the drug of choice. And if you ever used it, as my understanding, it just kind of makes you feel good and mellow, and and you know it's got kind of it connected with sex and young people and dancing and and having a good time. Uh, so during this time, the Devil Dogs, a kid named Mike Papa, came out of the Devil Dogs, came out with with all these connections with with these other kind of tough guys, uh, suburban tough guys, but tough guys. Weightlifters and jocks, and you now Mike Papa did not know Sammy the Bull or Gravano's uh, family at all. He was a little bit, a little bit older than Gerard Gravano, I believe. But he was a uh, enterprising young man, and, and Mike Papa started dealing with uh, uh, ecstasy, and and he got some of these other guys, and he got a connection probably with Mexican ecstasy at the time which was not as good at the same time the guy that was really into it in uh, phoenix area the southwest part of the united states was getting bigger and bigger because he had a direct connection back to uh, the netherlands i believe back to europe for a source of really high quality ecstasy pills and and his name was sean atwood they used to call him english sean and he became like the main connection for the whole Southwest part of the United States. And, and even on uh, Michael Francis's podcast, he was, ta- I believe he was talking or was talking about uh, Sean Atwood, English Sean. I think he was talking to him. And, and he said that he had owned the Billboard Lounge I was on Sunset Strip, I believe, back in those days, or at least have a piece of it. And, and his bouncers, one of his bouncers, or more than one of his bouncers, ways indicated, came to him and asked for permission to sell that ecstasy to people when they came in. He said, you know, no, no, no way. But he said out of his own curiosity, he said, well, where do you get your, where do you get this stuff? And he said, oh, we get it from an English guy down in Phoenix. Oh, that's got an interesting little cross paths of, because Sean Atwood now has, I'm giving a little free advertising, has his own podcast and YouTube channel and uh, Michael Francese does too. So when Sammy the Bull does it, and I do here in Kansas City. Sammy the Bull, Gravano, who is now, you know, these guys like to go to warmer climates. Everyone I've ever talked to said, <laughs> he said, I, I always tell them wherever the two or three guys I've talked to, I say everyone, but I've talked to two or three guys. He said, I tell them I want to go to a warmer climate. I do not want to go up north. Some of them do end up north, but I don't want to go to a warmer climate, Texas, Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona. I understand it's filled with them. But he came, you know, in 1995, he got to Phoenix. He had to serve five years in penitentiary for his participation in 19 murders and a lot of other criminal acts, but five years. Now, the name he took on down in Phoenix was Jimmy Moran. It's pretty simple and easy name to remember. And I bet he one time knew somebody by the name of Jimmy Moran. Started this marathon construction company, advertised he could install swimming pools, used the name Creative Pools. Now, of interest is that Gravano's New York construction company was Marathon Construction. Deborah, uh, Sammy the Bull's wife, has filed for divorce, like Ma said. They don't live together. They built a huge, big uh, I don't know, 
four or five thousand, I think an even larger than that, square foot house, huge big mansion type house. And the person we now know as Jimmy Moran had moved into a small apartment uh, that was described as like a kind of a apartment that a young single guy just starting out with a uh, kind of a low-end job uh, might have and he'd always claimed he did this in case somebody would try to hit him in his home and and his family wouldn't be involved in that at all his daughter karen at first was living in maryland and his son gerard it was just maybe out of high school i'm not sure moved out to phoenix uh, you know after they get there some writers say it's 95, 96, 97 or so. Sammy's ex-wife and her name, and I think maybe his son's name, Gerard, buy a restaurant. They opened up a restaurant called Uncle Sal's Italiana Ristorante in Scottsdale. The tagline was the best kept secret in Scottsdale. Think about that. Uncle Sal, Salvatore, best kept secret in Scottsdale. Kind of a, <laughs> a little play on words, I think. I guess they thought they were too cool by half and or too clever by half sammy often ate there her son gerard worked there and, and he entered the scottsdale culinary institute of america he wanted to be like a, a regular chef this bob was actually pretty reasonably successful for several years they don't still own it but it's still down there at 3370 north hayden road scottsdale if you want to go check out that restaurant i think i looked it up online still the same name uncle sal's National Geographic did a look at all this. They're, they're being down in Scottsdale. This was after they all got busted for drugs. The daughter, Karen, tells the story about her, she and her brother, Gerard, how they first got in the drug business because they, you know, they weren't really, they were young kids and they were really, you know, involved in the drug business. And which is a different business than Sammy the Bull had always been involved in any, I would have known people. They weren't dealing, the, you know, the, he wasn't mentoring them to get the drug business. She was living in Maryland, and she saw an opportunity to sell weed back there. And she knew that Gerard had really easy access to a lot of, of good quality weed down there in the southwest part of the United States, you know, closer to Mexico. She got him to mail her a pound of weed, and some alert postal clerk caught it and turned him in. And, and you know, they were going to bust him the the. Postal inspectors looked at it, and the case wasn't really that good, and, and in the end, neither one of them were prosecuted, but that's how they first got into making money off of narcotics, and there's a lot of money to be made in narcotics. She had a boyfriend by this name named David, by this time, named David Seabrook, and they moved back to Phoenix, and both went to work at Marathon Construction. It was sometime around this time when, well, after they came back, 97, 98, that Gervano understands, he figures out, or somebody comes to him or something that he wanted to be a, wanted to get into selling drugs. And Gervano supposedly told people that he wanted to get into selling drugs. And, and Gervano tells his son, supposedly, that he would teach him the ropes. Now, this came from a guy, a 35 year old guy named Phil Pasucci. P-A-S-C-U-C-C-I, Pascucci, Pascucci, Phil Pascucci. Phil Pascucci claimed that he went into the Gravano orbit during these years. He is an East Coast guy who had ingratiated himself with Sammy the Bull. 
Sources claim that the two began a really tight three-year relationship in which Pascucci acted as a business partner, but also as a surrogate son. Pascucci will later claim that Gravano asked him to help him put together a large pot purchase. Gravano wants Pascucci to help him put together a really large-scale pot purchase or weed purchase. Pascucci claimed that he told Savvy the Bull, that's too hard, it's too dangerous, but here's a thing that's a new thing. You can make money, and it's not so dangerous, and that's ecstasy. He explained how you could buy a pill for like 50 cents and sell it for 9 or 10 bucks. Pascucci had a clandestine lab of his own down in around San Antonio, Texas, and he claims, and this is later on after this whole thing falls, Pascucci has been arrested. And he claims that Sammy was operating a wholesale ecstasy operation in Phoenix. And this is kind of before all this, you know, really other went down with Gerard and, and his daughter and wife on the wiretaps. There's even a government document out there that claims that Gravano once said his son Gerard did not really have what it takes to be a criminal. He said, some people do and some people don't. I, I can hear him saying that just matter of fact. Matter of fact, hey, bro, some people do, some people don't. Pascucci's ecstasy lab dried up because his chemist was murdered down there in phoenix or down there in san antonio and san antonio and the cops are going after him they were all over him anyhow and gravano dropped this relationship which explains why he will come back around later and testify not really uh against gravano and his selling ecstasy or pot or anything else but at a bond hearing because they now have you know several years later uh, they made a case on Pascucci, and he's desperately trying to minimize his uh, exposure to, to more time in the penitentiary, as they all do. About this time, like I said, 97, 98, Pascucci claims that he and Sammy the Bull got into the ecstasy business together. Other people would say that Mike Papa and Gerard Gravano start getting into the ecstasy business together. Uh, Mike Papa was already in it. He's, he, like, brings Gerard in it. Gravano's using Jimmy Moran. Uh, he had removed himself from the witness protection program. He said it was too restrictive. And his wife live apart, as I said. Both his children, Karen and Gerard, are living in Phoenix. She's working at his, and her boyfriend, David Seabrook. They're working at his uh, pool company, and, and Gerard's working at the restaurant. And according to Pascucci, Gravano had already dabbled in the ecstasy business. But when Gerard Gravano met Mike Papa, who was already well-known in the raves, already had his own small ecstasy distribution network, mainly in nightclubs around Arizona State University, government claims that Papa, when he first was getting started here, first met Gerard Gravano, he was selling as many as a thousand pills a week, which is, you know, mark up about 10 bucks each. You, that would be 10,000 a week. Uh, you can buy a lot of drinks. You can wear really expensive clothes. You can drive a really expensive car on 40,000 a month. But that's not the huge big time. That's not cartel time. That's not Scarface time where you can bury your nose in a you know, uh, 10 pounds of cocaine and drive uh, Maseratis and Ferraris and, and have airplanes and all that. So Mike Papa's got a way to go. He supposedly told Gerard that if he could get the backing, he could get the financing, he can move as much as 25,000 bills a week, or that'd be about 250K a week. As Gerard 
got more involved with Mike Papa and talking about, you know, get some money. We could make even more money. He told Mike Papa about his father and who he really was. And Mike Papa, (laughs) he knows an opportunity when he sees one. And he immediately starts, you know, working Gerard to bring Sammy the Bull in. Sammy the Bull must have a bunch of money somewhere. Mike Papa will later testify that Gravano started giving him money for larger wholesale buys and mentored him in the ways of being a gangster, the ways of, of criminal behavior and how to avoid the police. Uh, folks later will say that this Papa would become tongue-tied and stare at the floor when he talked to Sammy the Bull, like, you know, in awe of him, I guess. One source would later allege that Sammy would kind of go up and down with Papa. One day or one week, Sammy would like him. The next week, he'd say, ah, this kid, he can't be involved with us, indicating that he already had his own thing going and he was bringing Papa in. Arrangement was pretty straightforward. Papa had a distribution network, and Sammy started providing cash for large wholesale purchases, a really good ecstasy that came from Europe. And, and he also provided him with the threat of his name, and, and that was his big downfall. Because Mike Papa, when he had anybody gave him any problem, he also had this uh, these devil dog guys that, that would come in. He, he was in mixed martial arts and knew a guy in that. And he could bring people in to, to strong-arm people and eliminate competition, which he immediately started doing. And when that didn't work, he could always invoke the name of Sammy the Bull Gravano. I said, you know, I'm part of the Gravano organization down here in Phoenix. Well, in 1999, Papa got a really good ecstasy connection with an Israeli from New York City. But what he didn't know was the feds were already working this guy and uh, had wiretaps and undercovers going all at the same time. Uh, but he started bragging around in Phoenix. Is this guy he started bragging around about the Gravano organization being connected to Sammy the Bull, and and he said he had connections high up in the Israeli mafia, and he did start getting his supply of ecstasy from a smuggling organization ran by a uh, guy what, what you would call the Israeli mafia. His name was Jacob Koki was his uh, moniker, I guess, or God. Now, Jacob Wargod specialized in hiring, uh, like, strippers and people like that in middle America or young Israelis who would dress up like Orthodox Jews, and they would be the drug mules who would go to Europe and bring it back. And, and Orgod had a national or nationwide organization. He had his fingers into every major metropolitan area in America at the time, delivering ecstasy. He had a guy in New York, kind of a, an underling, a lieutenant, a lieutenant named Ilian Zager. Uh, Zager became Papa's source for the ecstasy. And and Mike Papa and Gerard Gravano, people, you know, people later on would say, you know, they are going around town to the clubs. They're like acting like they're big time mafioso. And, and they did have this good supply of uh high-quality ecstasy coming in, and, and they started working on dominating the Phoenix market, which English Sean, now they're starting to push him out. He's got a lot to say about that. Backed up by these devil dogs and uh, this mixed martial arts guy that just beat and intimidated their way into a bigger and bigger share of the ecstasy market. 
And a good example of this is in 1999, Gerard and Mike Papa confronted an ex-dealer, one of uh, English Sean's, but also connected to the Israelis, a guy named Keller. And they caught him as he was left leaving a club called the Pompeii near Arizona State University. Grabbed him up, started choking him and whacking him around. What's reported is George starts screaming, this is our fucking turf. Mike Papa dropped Keller down the ground. They stomped him into a pulp. Well, this guy worked for their source, which is kind of interesting, Ilian Zarger. And, and again, I think this is where English Sean figures into this. I didn't really work at trying. I tried to get Atwood to come on the podcast, but he wouldn't. So somewhere around there, this is because he tells a similar kind of a story just like that. He said it's one of his dealers. Zargers reportedly said some kind of a real bad killer dude known as Macho to, to Arizona. Keller and a couple other Zarger associates came into town, demanded a meeting with this Gravano organization, which Sammy the Bull admits that this did happen. And and they went to the Uncle Sal's restaurant. They had their sit down. You know, we have a sit down. And he tried the old mafia tactics and you know, intimidation and, and, you know, they make you an offer you can't refuse and, and all that kind of thing. I don't think they were too impressed. Uh, but this going to come back to haunting because he makes the claim something about he's the boss in, in all of Arizona, the Arizona mafia, I guess. <laughs> and and he admitted to doing this later on, I believe. I'm, I'm sure he did. And, and he also, he admitted that it was a mistake to do that. He thought he was still in New York. He thought he could buy the police off. He thought he could uh, intimidate witnesses. And, and you know, as a New York, this is uh, suburban Phoenix, Arizona. You know, by this time, uh, Sammy's living in Phoenix area without really trying to hide his identity so much. He's gotten so relaxed out there. About this time is when those uh, uh, late 80s uh, is when this... Uh, hit teams coming down from New York City. And so I've got to, you know, just go in and search on my podcast for the hit team from Phoenix, uh, Arizona, the hit team, the Gambino hit team uh, after Nirvana or something like that. I can't remember. You can find it. He likes to frequent a place called the Gold Bar Espresso House in Tempe. I read an article about this, and this is, of course, after he gets busted and, and uh, the staff and many regulars will claim that they knew who he really was. Now, this Phil Pascucci will later testify that that he did like to meet him at a coffee house to exchange ecstasy for money during that time. He also claimed that there was a certain steakhouse in Phoenix that a piano player, he was so well known there that the piano player would break into the theme from The Godfather whenever he came in. So I don't know, you know, somewhere in there, there's there's some truth and, and, and some fiction you, you never know. I talked to, a, you know, I talked to a policeman uh, that was part of this uh, investigation. He didn't really want to have his face out there and get on the podcast. But he gave me a lot of this. And, and he said, uh, you know, the only thing he knew about the coffee house, and a lot of this is, comes from uh, news reporting, is the coffee house is that Pascucci uh, did say that he'd meet him in a coffee house. He wasn't sure about that whole steakhouse uh, Godfather routine, but uh, theme from the Godfather. It's a good story. What the hell? According to one article I read, uh, he would uh, often at this coffee house. Everybody knew him, and they even called him Mister Gravano. And and he would sign copies of his book for uh, underboss for patrons of the coffee house, and he. 
<laughs> the word got around, but and and you know the word was getting around because during this time the Arizona Republic, which is the newspaper out there, assigned a reporter named Dennis Wagner to go find out about him and write an in-depth piece about his life in Phoenix if he's going to live out there so publicly. And and he had been on sixty Minutes by this time. All that this is all trying to help sell books. He sold, I think he got like maybe a half a million or six hundred thousand dollars up front on that book. Or because uh, uh, the victims of his his murder victims, the relatives of his murder victims, are trying to get some of that money. You can't really to to profit off your crime. There's laws in different states, and you know I don't. There's not a federal law, a national law on that, or another state. And I think maybe his crimes. I don't know if they all happen in New York. Some of them might have happened in New Jersey too. So uh, I, I didn't really dig deep into that. That's a whole other story. There, I get some of those uh, relatives, of those victims, to come and, and we'll talk about that one of these days. Dennis Wagner, the reporter, you know, later say that you know they found out about Marathon Construction Company. He said he was so nervous when he went over there to confront Sammy the Bull because he was sure he was there. He drove around the block several times before he got up, uh, screwed up his courage, and, uh, screw up your courage to the sticking spot. He got to the sticking spot and, and went in, rang it, no one anybody up front at the uh, desk, rang a bell, Sammy the Bull comes out. He says, Sammy the Bull says in a really rough, gruff voice, says, what do you want? The guy says, I want to write a story about you and your life here in Phoenix. Sammy says, you'll get people killed. Uh, Wagner's Later, we'll write that Gravano took him back into his office and threatened and pleaded and argued and asked him not to write this story. But, you know, it's too late. He'd been on 60 Minutes, been living as Jimmy Moran on the surface. And, and a lot of people, too publicly, they knew him as Sammy the Bull. And, and he had him had fans and, and said they had this one young woman walked up to him and tried to call him Sammy the Bull. And, and he said, well, you don't call me that. You're too young. So she started calling him Mr. Gravano. <laughs> You know, and, and in a weird turn of events during this time when he's living, you know, in Phoenix under the name Jimmy Moran. Now, go figure this. There's the a union, a police union in the Chicago area ran by a cop named John Flood. And it's called the Combined Counties Police Association of Illinois. And he has promised, I think on his website, they have a website or something, I think they still got one a $500 finder's fee for anybody that would tell them where Sammy the Bull Gravano was living. John Flood, he's kind of a character. I talked to him once, and, and he was quoted as saying, it's despicable that an admitted murderer can be unleashed back out into society after spending less than five years behind bars. And this group of relatives, the men who had been murdered by Gravano had had already hired a lawyer, civil rights lawyer named Ronald L. Kuby to sue him in civil court and, and they're going after him and, and so he's got you know, he's got a lot of people after him, but he doesn't care. And he's basically living uh, you know, might as well be Sammy the Bull, the head of the Phoenix Mafia, because you know, that word is getting around. Some of these people are still active with this. I, I got I saw a I threw a comment from one of them, so I'd probably try to start getting hold of a few of them and, and uh, see if I can't do a story on that. What do you guys think? I think it, I think it'd be an interesting story. Uh, their their fight to get 
justice and compensation. So anyhow, here we are. He hadn't got arrested yet. I haven't really explained what all happened. Why don't we do a second episode on that? Going just quite a while. So I really appreciate you guys listening. Come back next week and listen to the second episode of Sammy the Bull Gravano in Phoenix and getting arrested for running the ecstasy ring and answering the question. Was he really, was this his and he was really making money out of it and he just brought his kids in or what are these kids? It was his kids operation. And right now it, it looks like it could go either way. We got people talking both ways. His kids operation. And he, go, he goes ahead and says, Hey, you know, I'll cop a plea to this. You can bag me, bag the big fish, you know, just leave my kids out of it or minimize uh, what happens to my kids as a result of this. Cause I believe they're all going to be involved. They certainly all, the wife, the daughter, and the son all ended up in court about this big ecstasy organization. So don't forget to look out for motorcycles, folks, when you're out there on the street. It's still rode yesterday, actually, or the day before. Played golf yesterday. Uh, I rode over the weekend. That's what it was. I spent the whole day last Friday. This is today's Tuesday, I think. Last Friday, I spent the whole day on it. Went up home about the hour north of here. Saw my brother and my cousin we all went out and rode somewhere, came back. And so anyhow, uh, look out for motorcycles. And if you have a problem with PTSD, if you've been in the service, you know, go to the VA and get that hotline and call that hotline number. If you've got a friend or a relative, call that hotline number and see about help because there's help available for people with PTSD. Thanks a lot, folks.